This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works, and for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. As I look at this week, here's what's ahead. Monday, April 15th, tax day. You have to have your return in, or if you don't, you gotta get an extension, and even if you have an extension, you must pay the money you owe to the federal government. But this day should remind us of a basic principle about taxation. Taxes just don't raise revenue for the government, they're also a price and a burden. And if you lower the price and burden on good things like productive work, risk-taking success, you'll get more of them, which is why the Trump tax cuts, as they call them, which were signed into law in December of 2017, took effect in 2018. Even though it was not uh, the best kind of tax bill, it certainly helped the economy. It doubled the exemption on the personal side, reduced the top rate from 39.6% to 37%, but the big impact was on the business side. Before that tax bill, we had the worst corporate tax rate among developed countries in the world, and now we have a right in the middle. Not great, but not bad. It reduced the corporate rate on the federal level from 35% to 21%. Then you have to add in the average 5% taxes imposed by the various states in this country. So it averages out to 26%. Many countries are much lower, Others are higher, so we're kind of in the middle. But that reduction certainly has helped the economy get out of the rut, post-2008 crisis rut, and takes us to a new, higher level of prosperity. On the personal side, they did get rid of a lot of exemptions, what they call SALT, state and local tax deductions, put a limit of $10,000. That slammed a lot of taxpayers in California, New York, New Jersey, and other high-income states, I thought that was a mistake. I'm all for taking out deductions, but they should have slashed the personal tax rates as well. And the Republicans paid a price for it. It's one of the reasons why the Republican congressional delegation was virtually wiped out in New Jersey with one exception. Took hits in Southern California, New York, and elsewhere. But overall, the bill did more, far more good than harm. And the other thing that is helping the economy, which is another form of taxation, regulation. Regulations are a form of taxation, costing this economy now, by expert estimates, $2 trillion a year. So the deregulation, which doesn't get headlines, but amazingly this administration has continued to pursue it, has also helped businesses, especially small businesses. Now the one big overhang on all of this, we should remember on tax day, is another tax, tariff. Tariff is another word for sales tax. We're in these very serious trade skirmishes. It's not yet a trade war, but the very serious trade skirmishes, uh, first with Mexico and Canada, now with China. One is looming with Europe. If we don't resolve these, the U.S. economy will slow down again. It looks like we're going to get an agreement with China on these tariffs, these sales taxes. That'll be good. And remember, sales taxes apply to us, not just to the Chinese. And to say, well, China will be hurt more than us, well, we're hurt too. And hurt is hurt. They may hurt more, but we're hurting too. So the sooner we get this dispute resolved, the better. 
We do have an agreement with Mexico and Canada called the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. They don't want to use the word NAFTA anymore. Fine. Question is, can it get through Congress? Hopefully it will get through Congress. Again, not perfect, but a little better than what we had before, more forward-looking. And to get through Congress, a good thing may happen. As a price for getting this through, the tariffs that remain on aluminum and steel from Mexico and Canada, there are many in the Senate and in the House of Representatives, too, who want those tariffs all removed. I think that would be a great exchange, get rid of all those tariffs, pass NAFTA II or the U.S., Mexico-Canada agreement, that'll be good. Then the other overhang we have to be aware of is car tariffs, car taxes. If you want to impress people at a cocktail party, mention, I'm worried about this action under Section 232. Section 232 allows the government to impose tariffs, sales taxes, in the name of national security. And the big outstanding one is they want to impose some people Massive taxes on imports of autos and auto parts. No surprise the U.S. auto industry, or perhaps it is a surprise, is against this because they do import a lot of parts, even if we're making uh, manufacturing cars here in the United States. These elaborate supply chains would be massively disrupted around the world. Germany and Europe would go into a massive recession. So hopefully we'll get that off the table. But if we get these overhangs out of the way, you'll see a better stock market and a better economy. Which brings us to a more fundamental question, is why do we have this hideously complicated tax code? Just to put it in perspective, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which defined the character of the American nation, all of 272 words, our Constitution, with all the amendments, a little over 7,000 words, the Bible, which took centuries to put together, over 780,000 words. Now, the U.S. Federal Income Tax Code and all the attendant rules and regulations come to at least 10 million words and rising. Nobody knows what's in it. The IRS doesn't know what's in it. If you call their hotline, for example, assuming they answer the thing, a fourth or a third of the time they'll give you the wrong answer, but hold you responsible for it. So why don't we just junk this whole thing, it's beyond repair, throw it out and put in a simple flat tax. That is a single rate system. 35 countries have done it around the world. It has worked. I have a proposal. Mine would give generous exemptions for adults and for kids and that's it. For example, a family of four. Family of four under a flat tax, your first $52,800 of salary would be free of federal income tax. And anything you earn above the $52,800, only 17 cents on the dollar, 17%. No tax on savings and no death taxes. I've always believed you should be allowed to leave the world unmolested by the IRS. Do the same thing on the business side. The tax bill that was passed a little over a year ago makes good steps in that direction, but we got a lot more ways to go. Do that and you'll see this economy take off like a proverbial rocket. You could literally do your tax return on a postcard or a few keystrokes on your computer. And so it would get rid of this monstrous code. It brings out the worst in us. Half the lobbying in Washington revolves around this corrupt code. And the sooner we get rid of it, the better. It's not an economic issue. It is a moral issue. The IRS estimates, estimates that we spend six billion hours a year filling out tax forms. Experts estimate we spent over $200 billion a year complying with this monstrosity. And for what? Now go back 20 years. Take those over 100 billion hours. 
Take those literally trillions of dollars spent complying with this hideous code. And just imagine for a moment if all that brain power, all that time, all those resources had gone into creating new products, new services, new medical devices, new cures for diseases, how much better off we'd all be. What economists call the opportunity cost has been immense. Why are we devoting so much brain power and resources to this hideous code when we do better with a simple flat tax? Now, before closing and getting to our very special guest, on Tuesday, April 16th, a new book is coming out. I'll call it VIB, very important book. It's written by Rich Carlgaard, colleague here at Forbes. He's been publisher, columnist, author, lecturer, likes to call himself a futurist. His new book is called Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. We sort of have this environment today where if you don't win a Nobel Prize by the age of 21, you're doomed to failure. It's all nonsense. Now, we're all familiar with the scandals around college admissions, bribing coaches and admissions officers and all that sort of thing. But this is a, really the underside of this massive obsession with parents concerned with getting their kids into the right colleges and universities. A huge industry has risen up of consultants, test preparations. You don't dare take an SAT without having been tested before, coached before on how you take these things. Everything now seems to be programmed. What do you do during the summer? Oh, just don't take a summer job because you might like it and might learn something. It better be something that'll impress a college admissions officer like digging ditches in Uganda or serving food to the poor. Or what sport? Don't play a sport because you might like it. Play a sport because it might impress the athletic department at a particular university. They might give you a scholarship. Play a musical instrument. Pick the right one that might impress a certain university or college. Oh, so it's manic. And the idea behind all of it is, is that we must get in. A prestigious school or your life is hideously bad or ruined or you're going to be behind the eight ball now, it is true in certain countries, if you don't go to the right university, you are behind the eight ball. In America, though, that is just absolute nonsense. Truth is, there are plenty of very good schools, colleges, universities here in the United States. And what matters, even though no one seems to believe it these days, what matters is what you get out of an institution. There's plenty there for you to get good things out of it. And very importantly, it's what you do after you graduate from college. A Stanford professor is quoted by Rich as saying that the kids coming in today very, very brittle because they've all been programmed. Don't do anything that might be a real risk because if you're seen as having a setback anywhere, it's going to ruin your chances for a good life. And so Rich shows it's all baloney. And what he also points out is that each of us is different in our rhythm of life. Some of us take a while before we find what we're, our true calling is. Rich, for example, he graduated from Stanford, but for a while he floundered out in the workforce. He even spent time as a nighttime security guard before he found his true calling. So we need a gentler view of how each of us develops. Each of us is different, and Rich cites numerous studies to show that this is absolutely true. Just two quick examples. I met a communications executive the other day, very high position, doing very, very well, making big, big bucks. He graduated from Hofstra, had a good time there, got what he needed in his communications and business courses he took there, leading a very successful life. The new head of the World Bank 
brilliant man, David Malpass, went to Colorado College, not one of the Ivy Leagues. So it doesn't really matter, contrary to all this manic myth, it doesn't really matter where you go. It's what you get out of it, and more importantly, what you do when you leave the school. And you may not even graduate from the school. Just look at all these high-tech geniuses. A lot of them never graduated from college. So there are three big takeaways from this important book. One is we got to get over, you got to succeed early or your life is doomed. Not true. It's wonderful to see young people achieve great things, but you can achieve great things all throughout your life. As Yogi Berra said, it ain't over till it's over. Absolutely true. Second big takeaway is each of us has a different timetable. Rich says we need a kinder clock of human development because as we age, and Rich cites numerous examples and studies that prove this, we get more critical and important attributes such as wisdom, curiosity, creativity. It's not over if you're not a huge success by the age of 40. We have more to offer as we age, surprisingly. And the third big takeaway, we're wasting immense talent by the way we treat the elderly. Now, as we get older, sometimes people feel like slowing down, so it's understandable that a business would want you sort of to go to the door and make way for ambitious young people who are gonna have that drive and energy. You may reach a time of life where you don't wanna travel 300,000 miles a year, uh, spending all your time in TSA lines and meetings and frenetic, frenetic life, fine. But instead of just putting you out to pasture, Rich suggests perhaps we should develop a culture, and this would involve a change of cultural attitudes, involve a change in the legal system, where you might take a big cut in pay because you're not going to have those executive responsibilities anymore, but become a mentor. You have immense knowledge and experience that would be invaluable to younger people. The nice thing about that kind of position is you're not going to be competing them for turf. You're over that. You're past that. You're in a different phase of life. You're not competing them with for promotions or salary. You're there as a mentor. It's something to think about. And now we come to our very special guest, Mitch Daniels, a man who's going to deal with the question, why are college costs so damnably high and what can be done about it? This is not theory. This man is actually doing something about it as president of Purdue University, former governor of Indiana, former budget director in Washington, author, all-around genius. Mitch, thanks for joining. Well, thanks, Steve. You, uh, as people often do, you left out the longest part of my, and proudest in many ways, part of my uh, working days, which was a long time in business, a lot of that with uh, Eli Lilly and company, where I learned everything important I needed to know. But uh, <laughs> uh, thank you for having me. Great to have you uh, with us. So uh, let's start with the obvious question. How did you become a university president? Why Purdue? The answer to the first question is because the phone rang, and then it rang again and again. I was It was something I uh, didn't take seriously for a while, but the trustees here were persistent. I'm glad they were. Uh, ultimately, uh, that led me to the second question, why Purdue? And I think the short answer is that um, uh, I believe that, first of all, this job would have been fascinating at any point in time. I think it's especially so at a time when higher ed is um, – being challenged and being looked at more uh, with more scrutiny than before, and very deservedly so. It's a so it's a very interesting time. Be like being in a business sector under uh, significant pressure, a competitive pressure, like a print publication in the age of the internet. Yeah, well, <laughs> hopefully more successfully than 
than most, except uh, you're an exception, I guess, to a general rule there that's that's a little uh, depressing. Yeah, there, there's all that. And um, and I would, I, I think, in all honesty, say that Purdue is, is a premier um, science and engineering school at a time when that is so central to the economic success of the country and the state I care most about. So uh, tell us the difference between uh, politics and academia. Yeah. Sometimes I use that old joke that in, in my last job, it was dog eat dog. And here it's just the opposite. First, I'll say there are as many similarities as differences. Um, you have to try to uh, make ends meet in the uh, absence of an income statement or at least the, the uh, pressure of, of profit uh, competition. And uh, that's one reason that both government and higher ed have uh, too typically been very inefficient. Uh, as everywhere else I've been, um, making effective change uh, requires an ability to uh, first uh, identify a clear and uh, direction that people can relate to and one hopes become enthusiastic about, and then aligning people, lots of people, to uh, do their own best work in producing that result. Before we get to uh, the extraordinary things you've done at Purdue, uh, comment on uh, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos trying to bring back due process for uh, certain disciplinary cases at universities. Uh, what what have you done at Purdue, and what, what are your thoughts on this whole trend of uh, you're guilty until proven innocent? Yeah. Uh, higher ed has been operating in something of a netherworld of of uh, so-called guidelines, or really it was just a letter, no clear, firm uh, rule, the veiled threat of, of punitive action if one didn't toe the line. Um, I think, uh, I don't know what the final um, uh, rulemaking if, uh, will look like, but I hope it provides flexibility for schools to address this very, very serious and real problem. We're deadly serious about it here at Purdue in terms of uh, making certain we have a very safe and welcoming environment, but also that justice is ultimately served. And uh, there are uh, in, there are way too many instances in which some sort of real uh, abuse happens, but there are a few where uh, the uh, facts uh, prove to be more murky. And there needs to be room for due process so that there's uh, there's fairness to all parties. You uh, mentioned the importance of uh, setting a direction, and one of the most remarkable things you've done from day one is uh, get a grip around the seemingly inexorable rise of tuitions. Uh, the sticker prices you know in the recent generations have gone up four times the rate of inflation. So uh, walk us through from the beginning, from your almost first day in office, uh, what you did with the uh, tuitions. So I suggested on arrival that the upcoming tuition decision, what if we took a one-year timeout? I confess that's all I had in mind that first time, just to send a signal that we were um, aware of the growing concern. Some of the administrative people, of course, suggested we couldn't get along without the money, and I knew not to put much stock in that. But the admissions people said, if we, if we stand still while our competition is raising prices, people will believe we don't have confidence in our product, which uh, stunned me uh, because I did not, I thought that was out of touch, but it tells you that higher ed had been living in a very interesting economic uh, world in which um, higher prices were associated with quality because no one had any other way to measure. 
And what we found over the last few years is, is quite the opposite. I had no idea at the beginning that we'd be able to extend our freeze even to a second year, let alone to the, this is the sixth, and we'll do at least one more. What has happened instead of uh, losing customers is that it has led to a surge of applications and the biggest enrollment we've ever had. And one reason we've been able to keep on holding the line is, you know, the top line fixes a lot of problems and ours has gone up because of more students. Now, uh, before we get to some of the other things you've done on this, what are the mechanisms out there? Is it subsidies? Is it uh, government grants? Is it loan programs where it just goes up and up and up? The more aid that's given, the more expensive it seems to become. That's right. It was once referred to as the Bennett hypothesis after uh, former Secretary uh, Bill Bennett, who uh, first offered this conjecture back in, my goodness, probably uh, late 80s. Uh, the idea being that maybe this well-intentioned flooding of the higher ed sector with with uh, grants and loans was um, uh, enabling universities to raise their prices and pocket much of the money. That it was that it was uh, maybe even counterproductive. That's not a hypothesis anymore. That's been demonstrated over and over. The, a number of studies. The Federal Reserve uh, in New York uh, most recently. Every time another dollar is added to these programs, something like two-thirds to 70% of it uh, shows up in higher prices. That, that's not to say we don't want to do everything we can to make certain that young people of talent and purpose can attend the schools they're ready for. Uh, but um, the government loan programs in particular, I think, have been um, um, are in need of reexamination. One of the things you've done, in addition to uh, freezing tuition, is uh, you cut a deal with Amazon on textbooks, which uh, every student can tell you is the biggest ripoff program around. You know, $500 for some professor's book that sells only copies to unwilling students. Yes, well, um, it, it, you're raising a very important point. Uh, tuition was a starting point for us, and we were uh, delighted when we found we could continue uh, holding it down. But it's only the largest uh, and not not the only uh, source of the cost that's made college so difficult um, and student debt so high. Uh, room and board came next, and we've been able to cut that 10% here. By the way, the food is so much better than anything uh, most of your listeners will remember from their own college days. That's a low bar for some of us. <laughs> it, it is, but... Uh, I know when I first got here as a newcomer, people were always asking me what the biggest surprise was, and I would start with the food. It's stunningly uh, uh, diverse and good. But anyway, right How did you cut 10% there and improve oh, the quality? Simple, simple measures. For instance, we could use more student workers and, and fewer full-time adults, which was a double plus because we like for our students, to, uh, if they can, to earn money they need. Uh, we were purchasing... Uh, food in multiple places instead of in a unified way, just the simplest sort of things, which once again, when, when you operate, when any entity operates in the uh, absence of genuine competition, simple sloppiness can occur. So it turned out not to be too hard to do. But right behind those two categories comes books. And we, we, we became Amazon's first bricks and mortar facility of any kind, very slick operation. And we have two sites on campus. A student can order books or anything else, for that matter, that Amazon sells right off their personal device, right up till the evening hours of a given day. And the next morning after, I think it's 9 a.m., 
They walk into one of these two facilities, hold their phone under a scanner, be directed to a locker, which will pop open, and there's their books, 30% on average less expensive than uh, the duopolistic bookstores that we had here. No no shipping costs either. So what is the uh, in-state uh, tuition of Purdue and out-of-state tuition for Purdue? It's ninety nine ninety two in-state and just about three times that out-of-state. Uh, so it's still not inexpensive, but uh, we're doing all we can. And relative to many other places, it's becoming more and more attractive. You know, I run into a lot of students. Almost half our students come from another state or another country. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, books, food. How did you control academic costs and uh, not have a revolt of the faculty and find your head on the end of a pick? <laughs> you know, I w- well, f- the first thing I'll, I'll say is that we would not, as committed as we are to affordability, it cannot come at the expense of quality. What you're really offering and what we always emphasize is value, which is the relationship of quality to price. And, uh, you know, our, our faculty to student ratio is lower now than before we started freezing tuition. That is to say, we have grown the faculty slightly faster than the student body has grown. Uh, we are not using less expensive faculty, which is a big trend in higher ed now, is to quietly shift away from full-time and, and uh, long-term faculty to temporary contingent or even part-time teachers. Uh, we've not done that. We have the third highest ratio of tenure track faculty to total in the country. Um, so that's the starting point. There's so much more to do, but uh, we created a student affordability fund. And when we accrue or achieve an, ad- an administrative savings of whatever size, we assign it there so it can't leak into some other you know, non-essential uh, purpose the way bureaucracies tend to allow to happen. You mentioned once that you can't use a meat axe, that it's more like a scalpel with uh, the fat that courses through the meat. Uh, Walk us through how it's these incremental things that uh, pile up and make a difference over time. Right. Uh, That that is our experience. There have been only in in six years now, only a few uh, big big strokes that took out millions and millions at, at one time. A lot of it, it has to do with the way we, uh, with our capital program, not necessarily in the accounting sense, but uh, the, um, the work on our facilities, the repair and the rehabilitation, uh, new construction where we need it. We found lots and lots of small ways to economize there. We have automated a lot of things that you'd smile if I, if I told you. I mean, we, things we were doing on paper, how ironic at one of the world's centers of high-tech innovation the university had the first Department of Computer Science in the world, but a lot of the things that uh, business has been doing in an automated way for time, we, we were not. We had paper time cards in some cases until a few years ago. So how did you align the administration and the faculty in a way in which someday you leave, but uh, the culture is going to live? That's a, such an important question in any organization, and and I hope it'll be answered in the affirmative here that pride and and, uh, some sense of gratification at some of these changes, I hope will sustain this uh, ethic or uh, these sorts of themes uh, after we move on. Now, uh, one way you improve education is, as you mentioned and others have mentioned, you've got to have metrics so you really know if you're making uh, progress. How uh, how have you improved uh, the education at Purdue? 
so uh, we are uh, testing our students on arrival or a healthy sample of them on uh, instruments that have been shown to be a pretty good measure of critical thinking skills. And then we will measure them again later in their time here and out there at their graduation and hope that the results indicate that they have grown intellectually. I'm real excited about the number of uh, patents and new companies that are being born here. One thing you've done in that area is you've made clear you don't want to get hung up on how much the university gets, how much does a professor get. You sort of say, we'll get a little bit, but just go and do it and we'll all benefit. First of all, you're quite right. I, I said to our folks, let's quit worrying and certainly let's quit hassling our people about what percentage they would get and what percentage the university would get if something good ever happened to their uh, new uh, invention. Uh, that uh, the way to think about it is let's give birth to all the, the new uh, activity, economic activity we can. And sooner or later, something good will happen and Purdue will share in it. Well, a company born here called Endocyte was purchased by the um, great uh, pharmaceutical company Novartis for over $2 billion. And um, I don't know, I'm not necessarily predicting or expecting some of that coming back to the school, but maybe some will. One of the, uh, another unusual thing you did, uh, which raised eyebrows everywhere, was the purchase of Kaplan University, adult education. Uh, explain why you did it, uh, the cleanup, uh, the raps against uh, so-called profit education, and uh, what, what place you see it has uh, with uh, Purdue. We did it uh, for a, a positive and I'll say a less positive reason. The positive reason was that there, there are uh, tens of millions of, of Americans uh, who uh, began college and didn't complete it. And uh, that's uh, holding them back individually and it's holding us back as an economy and society. And, and the idea of, of helping them get uh, further education, get to a finish line and a, and a credential like that will make a huge difference in their lives and in the economic life of America. The, the negative or less positive reason is that in a world that's clearly going to be more and more uh, uh, involved with online delivery, we weren't getting very far. I came to the conclusion that if we could bring, it in, bring in uh, or acquire this capability from someone who'd already re um, refined it and, and honed uh, that skill, that it would be smart. And the opportunity presented itself and we did so. So now we have to make it work, and no one thinks that'll be easy. Uh, but uh, there we're, we're creating a new name in a marketplace that's competitive called Purdue Global, and uh, we're, we're excited about trying to be part of, of meeting that unserved need. Will this uh, be a profit, or is it uh, now morphed into, uh, in effect, a subsidiary of Purdue? <laughs> well, it's the latter, but that doesn't mean that uh, it, it can't generate revenues greater than its cost over time, and obviously we hope it will. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, as I used to say to my fellow citizens in the last job, nobody makes a profit, nobody has a job. Uh, two initiatives I want to hit on is uh, one is uh, back a boiler ISA fund, which is unusual, giving students uh, money, but it's not a grant, it's not a loan, there's not interest. Can you explain what, what this is, this program you've started? Uh, I think the simplest way to put it is that it's a way to finance with equity, not debt. 
Um, it operates uh, instead of borrowing money at a stated interest cost to, to be paid over a stated number of years in the future. Uh, the student signs a contract uh, with an investor or a fund and agrees that uh, to pay a fixed and therefore affordable, because it's voluntary, uh, percentage of post-graduation income, whatever that turns out to be. If it's zero, the amount owed is zero. So this shifts the risk of a failed career or a slow-starting career from the student to the investor. And that's one thing we like about it very, very much. It's certainly been fully subscribed. Our first fund has been completely invested, and we're raising the second fund right now with a lot of interest from both uh, foundations and investment funds and some individuals. And uh, so give a hypothetical example. How, how many years is this program? What percent of the salary would uh, you uh, pay in? And do uh, you have a cap on it? Yes. I don't have the table in front of me, but but the, at the low end, 2 or 3% for uh, five or six years. At the high end, maybe 7% for seven or eight years. There are caps. So if a, if a young person leaves here and hits the jackpot and gets promoted three times by year, year four, uh, their, uh, their total repayment is limited um, uh, to uh, an amount that, uh, you know, all in will still be a, a moderate part of their earnings. The, one thing to like about it is the student knows for certain that um, that the uh, the bill will not exceed a stated percentage, always a single digit, of their earnings, and uh, they have no such assurance in the case of debt, which can uh, quickly become um, perhaps the, their biggest expense item. Uh, one of the things you've done, uh, perhaps a little unusual for. Uh... Uh, engineering science school, land grant uh, university, is uh, your what you call your cornerstone program. The cornerstone was really based on the conviction some of us have, and I think there's plenty of evidence for this, that even the best technological preparation is not always adequate, that it's still extremely important, maybe more so in some cases, for a student to have a good grounding in what we thought of as the liberal arts to understand the history maybe of the of the science or technology that that he or she is now engaged in the social and societal context uh, of it and the possible implications of it the ethics of of some technologies are give rise to questions so anyway uh, our college of liberal arts uh, bless them uh, came up with a essentially a bundle you it's not it's more or less a minor, so they can leave here with with a with a real a grounding in the in the humanities and in the in the great questions. They'll be reading some of the great books uh, that they'd otherwise miss, and really be able to show uh, the world as they enter it that they uh, have a, a degree of balance. Finally, uh, any thoughts on what to do about the what they call the student debt bomb? Well over a trillion dollars, and. Uh, some say part of it should be forgiven or the whole thing, but others say you can't do it unless you get at the underlying cause of why it happened in the first place. What are your thoughts on that, how we deal with that? I have to say, uh, for two reasons, I've been very dubious about uh, these forgiveness programs. Uh, one is that uh, forgiving those debts today just simply transfers them to tomorrow, and that's not very fair. Secondly, I have not been 
personally sympathetic to the idea that if you're going to start forgiving debt, I, I wouldn't start with people who are entering the non-productive sector of society, which is the way it's set up now, government and nonprofit. Uh, if you're going to incentivize somebody, I'd probably start with those who are going to generate a new wealth and economic activity uh, that'll help uh, um, all of us pay these bills as they come due. Shortest answer, of course, is stop charging so much in the first place and people have to stop borrowing so much uh, to pay for it. Uh, anything we can do to work on that uh, and uh, stop making the debt problem worse uh, is, probably, uh, is probably the best uh, prescription I can offer right now. And in closing, are we ever going to see three-year college instead of four-year cut down the summer vacation to, say, five weeks and just get the thing done as quickly as possible? Very, a great question, and, and why not? Why not? In fact, in many countries, that's the norm. Uh, here at Purdue, we've been working on this. We are, we're offering three-year degrees in all of our liberal arts degrees, soon all of our health and human sciences degrees, or many of them. So why not? Uh, using the summer and uh, careful uh, uh, advising uh, a student uh, uh, by a, a little heavier schedule in a term or two and using the summer, using online uh, which is more and more effective and practical. Uh, we want to make it more and more possible for young people to move through as quickly as suits them and uh, get out in the world with an extra year, maybe, uh, of income to compound for them uh, and uh, save a lot of money on the, on the way there. President Daniels, thank you so very much. Enjoyed it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.